Welcome everybody to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont campus in Belmont, Massachusetts. If we don't know each other, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor of Mount Hope in Belmont, and it's good to talk to you again today. In the message you're about to hear, we're going to talk about what Jesus prayed for in his final prayer before he went to the cross. It's interesting what he chooses to pray for, and also based on current events in our culture. It's also a message that's very timely for us today. So we'll talk about all that, what Jesus prayed for, why it's so important to us today. And as we do, I hope you'll listen closely because I believe that God has something he wants to say to you. If you have a Bible with you, if it's on your phone, or if you have one of those old paper Bibles with you, you can turn to John chapter 17. That's where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat in front of you. Underneath the seat in front of you, there should be a Bible around, and uh, you can grab one of those. So if you're not really sure where John is, there's the four books that start the New Testament in the table of contents there, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And the fourth one is John. You can turn there and find chapter 17. We'll be there in a moment. Now, uh, I mentioned that, that my family was out glamping over the last week. Uh, we weren't camping. We were in a beautiful cabin up in the woods uh, with maid service and all sorts of nice things. And so it was truly glamping, but it was great. And it was part of a, of a camp, and it's called Camp of the Woods. And uh, it's a Christian camp, and our speaker was a guy by the name of Doc, Dr. Mark Yarborough, and he's from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he brought something to the camp that he showed us that I really enjoyed, and so I wanted to share with you at the, this morning. We're just going to have a little fun as we get started this morning. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you've been teaching children? How many, who has taught children? Okay. So you can appreciate what's happening here. We're going to look at a couple of test questions here, and we're going to look at how children answered those test questions. We'll have a little fun together this morning. So take a look at this one. Question number eight on this test. The first cells were probably, and the child, of course, answered, lonely. Makes sense. First cells were probably lonely. Makes sense. Well, how about this one? Find X. How many of you are math whizzes? I did not like math. This is how I would have done this. There it is. There's X right there. How kids answer these questions. How about this one? Where was the American Declaration of Independence signed? Does anyone know? Where was the Declaration of Independence signed? Philadelphia? Yeah, well, this child said at the bottom. It was signed at the bottom. I like this one. Draw a plant cell and identify its most important parts. This is exactly how I would picture a plant cell. There's the plant cell right there. And the important parts are that it has no windows and it has iron bars. Very important parts of any cell. What ended in 1896? Does anyone know what ended in 1896? Yeah, 1895, of course. Ended in 1896, right? I, whoever answered this one should get full credit for this entire answer. Write an example of risk. This. That is a correct answer as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> How might Colombia solve the problem of gorillas trying to c- control the country? Here's an honest answer. If a country can't figure it out, how can I? <laughs> it's fair enough. Fair enough. This is the second to last one, but this is my favorite one. 
Imagine that you lived at the same time as Abraham Lincoln. What would you say to him or ask him? Very compassionate child. I'd tell him not to go to a play, ever. <laughs> Be good advice. Now, how about this one? How about this one? Uh, this is a survey at the end of a semester for a class, and this one's kind of hard to read, but pay attention to this answer. Uh, it says, in the space below, please write any overall comments about this course or other comments you have about the instructor. And here's what the student wrote. If I had one hour to live, I'd spend it in this class because it feels like an eternity. <laughs> There you go. Let me ask you. If you knew you had limited time left, think about it with me. If you knew you had limited time left, what would you spend it doing? Of course, this student, if he had an hour left, he'd spend it in the class, or she'd spend it in the class. It feels like an eternity. But you, I mean, if you knew your time was running out, if you knew the clock was ticking down, what would you spend your time doing? How would you fill that last space of time? Let me ask you another question. Let's say you got down to the point where you knew you had one prayer left. One prayer left, what would you pray for? What would you ask God for if you knew that you had one last opportunity to come before God and offer up a prayer? What would you pray for? Over the next three weeks, we are going to be uh, talking about the community, the church, what it looks like to live as bodies of believers, what God wants for us to do, how he wants us to live, and we're going to do it all through John chapter 17. And if you're unfamiliar with John chapter 17, this is Jesus doing really just what we've talked about because he has been in ministry now for about three years. Jesus' public ministry, what's recorded for you in those books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John that I mentioned earlier, there's about three years there. He starts his public ministry, we think, around age 30, and it ends around age 33, 34. And so Jesus has, the end of these three years is wrapping up at this point in John chapter 17, and Jesus knows what's coming next. His disciples don't know, and the crowds don't know, but he knows that his arrest and crucifixion is next. And so he has, in chapter 16 of the book of John, one last opportunity to talk to his disciples, and in John chapter 17, one last opportunity to pray. And if you're going to just have one prayer left and you knew it was one prayer, certainly you would pray for what is most important to you, correct? I mean, I would do that if I just had one prayer left, if this was going to be the last one, uh, then I would pray for what is, is most important on my heart. And Jesus, I think, here does that very thing, prays for what is most important to him as he leaves this earth and goes to live in eternity with his Father in heaven. So what does he pray for? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. What does he ask God for in this final prayer before the weekend begins of his arrest and crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection? What does he ask his father 
for. That's what we're going to talk about this morning and talk a little bit about what it means to you and what it means to us, what it means to us in this building and what it means to all of those who would call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to deal with most of the verses in John chapter 17. This morning, we're just going to deal with two of them. It's John chapter 17, verse 20 and verse 21. And we're going to work through them a little slowly together this morning. So Jesus begins this prayer, and in the middle of it, in verse 20, he says these words. I do not ask for these only. Who who are the these? Those are his disciples. Those are his immediate followers. He's prayed for them. Now, what he's prayed for his disciples is the exact same thing that he's going to pray now for this next group of people. I do not ask for these only, not just my disciples who I see today, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus prays not just for his disciples, the people that have been following him around for the last three years, but he also prays for those who will believe in me through their word. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, who are the believers? Who are the people who believe? One thing that we have to remind ourselves of is that belief is something different than we often think of if we were going to go out and identify people who follow Jesus Christ. That if we were going to uh, go and try to find out who are the people that actually believe, who are the people that, that follow Jesus, who are the ones that Jesus is praying for in this verse, we might try and, and take a survey and say, well, who, is the, who are the people that attend church? Who are the people that, that attend church? Those must be the people who follow Jesus. But Jesus doesn't pray for the people who attend church. This is, this is a different group of people. He also doesn't pray necessarily for people who read a certain uh, section of books from Amazon or Barnes & Noble. He doesn't pray for people that listen to a certain type of music. He doesn't play, pray for a group of people that vote a certain way or think a certain way. Jesus prays very specifically for those who will believe. And the thing that we need to be honest with about, our, uh, about this morning is that you can, in many ways, mimic someone who follows Jesus Christ and still be someone who doesn't believe. That we could memorize Bible verses, listen to the right music, read the right books, go to the right events, and come into a building on a Sunday morning and be with a whole lot of people and still be people who do not believe. Well, who are the people who believe? This morning I was listening to Ravi Zacharias as I was coming into church. I really enjoy Ravi Zacharias. If you've never listened to him, I would highly recommend that you do. He's a preacher and apologist and philosopher and thinker. And he said one thing that people that believe in Jesus Christ recognize is that the problems in our world, the brokenness, the things that we see, the pain, the suffering, the evil, it's not a moral issue. 
whether it's in the world or it's in our own hearts, the things that we do that are wrong. I saw an interesting survey this week that came out from LifeWay Research, just came out this week, and LifeWay Research reported that over 86% of Americans identify themselves as sinners, which is amazing to me. And it tells me, and this is all people, very few of the people that they, only a small percentage of the people that were surveyed would call themselves evangelical Christians. And so the vast majority of our population, even if they say they don't believe in anything spiritually or they don't believe in organized religion, still know that they are sinners, that something is broken and wrong inside, that there's a moral law that they cannot live up to or attain on their own. And so whether it's the things that we see in the world or the things that we see in our own heart, the person who truly believes in Jesus Christ and follows him recognizes that what we have is not a moral issue, but a spiritual one, both in the world around us and in our own hearts, that we are at the deepest level affected by sin, And that the only solution to the reality of sin in our world and the sin that is inside of us is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That unless we put our trust in that, unless we believe in that, that there will always be a broken relationship between us and God. So this morning, I have a very simple question for you. Do you believe that It's one thing to come to church and just try to feel like a better person because you went to church that day. Kind of like when you go to the gym first thing in the morning and then the rest of the day you're like, I'm a pretty athletic person. I'm pretty good. I went to the gym this morning and the day started off great. You feel great the rest of the day. We can use church in the exact same way. It's, It's not just that you come into a building and you put in your hour and 15 minutes and then you leave feeling better about yourself. That's not believing. Nor is it just reading a certain book or listening to certain music or or being a part of a certain organization. None of those are believing in Jesus Christ. Those who believe, the people that Jesus is praying for here are the people that have put their trust in him alone, have said, I am a sinner. This world is broken by sin and there's no other solution than to put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Those are the ones who believe. Those are the people who Jesus is praying for. And this morning, I don't want to take for granted that just because you're sitting in a church building, you you believe. Do you believe that? If not, and you're fully aware of this problem of sin that exists in your life, you're one of the 86% of people in our culture that are fully aware of it, even if they don't count themselves part of a faith. I tell you this morning, the only solution to that in your life, none of us can fix it on our own. The only solution to that is to put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And those are the people whom Jesus is praying for in this verse those who believe. If you are someone who believes, then Jesus prays this prayer for you. If you're not someone who believes, today could be the day you start believing, and then this prayer is for you as well. Here's what Jesus says. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. 
It's so interesting to me how God works sometimes. We put John chapter 17 and a series on being the church on our calendar months ago. And here we are in a current climate where everyone is calling for unity. And no one is really sure how to achieve it in our world. We all want unity. People want unity around ideals. Around moral standards, we want unity, but none of us are sure how to get it done in our culture. And in fact, some, some of us are really perplexed and frustrated by it all. How interesting it is that this is what Jesus' prayer is for those of us who believe. That we too would be unified as one. And Jesus doesn't just say that we would be one around some sort of moral idea. Jesus says that his prayer is that we would be one as he and the Father are one. And so the question then becomes, how are Jesus and the Father one? Because however Jesus and the Father are one, that's what Jesus is praying for you and for me. That we, as believers, if you count yourself in that group, that we would reflect Jesus and his Father and their unity, that we would reflect that unity in ourselves. So the question becomes, how are Jesus and his Father one? Well, I think that it's that Jesus and his Father are one in two main areas. And I want to talk about those together briefly. The first one is Jesus and the Father are one, and Jesus displays it in his identity. In his identity. If you were to look across Jesus' ministry and you were to say, okay, how does Jesus identify himself? He doesn't identify himself the way many of us would identify himself. Uh, Ourselves. Jesus could have identified himself and said, they said, who are you, Jesus? Who who is this man? He could have easily said, I'm a carpenter from Nazareth. That's who I am. That's how we would often identify ourselves. Oh, who am I? Oh, I'm an accountant from Burlington. Oh, I'm I'm a I'm a computer programmer from Newton. That's often how we would identify ourselves by what we do and where we're from. If people asked us who are we, we might say, well, I I you know, I'm I'm a dad, I'm a mom, I'm a husband, I'm a wife. Someone asked us who we were. I'm a, I'm a Patriots fan. There was, there was a, a man that was at the camp this week that we were at. And every single day, every single day, I would guess that he was in his 70s, every day he wore something that had a Pittsburgh Steelers emblem on it. Pants and shirt. And one day he had jeans. One day he had jeans on. And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, okay, this is the day that he broke the Steelers the Steelers tradition, and he was walking away, and sure enough, right there on the back of his jeans was the Steelers emblem on the pocket. I talked to him. This might shock you. Huge Steelers fan, this guy. Loved him. In fact, he had sold Puma shoes to the Steelers in the 70s and was on the sidelines at a number of the Super Bowls that they won in the 70s as I talked to him. But identifying ourselves, we might identify ourselves with the sports teams that we like. But Jesus doesn't identify himself this way. He never says, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Jerusalem whatevers at the time. 
He doesn't say, uh, you know, I'm a carpenter from Nazareth. He doesn't say I'm the son of Mary and Joseph. Uh, When Jesus identifies himself, he will often do it the way that he did in John chapter 10, verse 30. He will say to people, I and the Father are one. This is my identity. I am the Son of God, sent here to take away the sins of the world. That's my identity. If you are someone who believes, then your primary identity, I think this is so important, I think this is so important for us in today's world. Your primary identity is that you are one with God through Jesus Christ. That is your primary identity. It supersedes any other identifier that we would normally use. And what happens, what's happening in our world is that for those of us who say that we believe, that identifier that we are one with God through Christ is slipping below other things. And so we are no longer Christians who do things. We are first our profession, and then we're also a Christian. We are first uh, maybe our sexuality, and then we're also a Christian. We are first uh, our gender, and then we're also a Christian. Whatever it is that we would use as an identifying principle, those things have slipped above uh, that we are one with God through Jesus Christ. And that is radically changing the way those of us who say we believe view this world and view ourselves in this world. And we ought to get this right. And I think this is one of the things that Jesus has in mind when he prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one, that we would get our identity correct and who we are in Christ. Everything you do, everything you are needs to be interpreted by the fact that you are a Christian first if you're someone who believes. And so we don't interpret the things of this world and interpret our views and interpret our understandings based on any other qualifier or identifier until we begin with the fact that we are followers of Jesus Christ. Then we look at all of these things. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. How do I understand these issues of the day? If we're someone who believes, we need to get that right. And you know what the amazing thing is? Is that links us together in a way that no other thing could ever link us together if we're followers of Jesus Christ. When we use that term brothers and sisters, I know that's an older term we don't use much in church anymore, but that term brothers and sisters, the family of God, the reason we are the family of God is not because we come together and we sing and we listen to a sermon and then we eat donuts. That's not what makes us brothers and sisters. The thing that makes us brothers and sisters is the fact that we were sinners, lost and dead, and we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. He has made us alive and new, and so now I have that in common with you, and no no matter who you are or where you're from, we are one and the same in Christ. Our identity, our core identity is the same. If we start putting other things ahead of that piece, then rather than creating unity, it actually creates division. I, uh, a few weeks ago, um, I did the homily at a, at a wedding, and Some of you know Andrew and Lavinia. They got married a few weeks ago. And we were down in Rhode Island, and we were at a Catholic chapel on the water in Warwick, Rhode Island. It was a beautiful setting. And the priest was a a, a great guy, and I got to know him because we met a few times to plan out the ceremony. And I will tell you, based on the conversations, 
And I know there's a lot of feelings about the Catholic Church, but I will tell you, based on the conversations that I had with this priest, there's no doubt in my mind that we are brothers in Christ, okay? We may disagree on some other things, theological things, it's fine. We're brothers in Christ, I believe that's true. He got up at the start of the wedding ceremony, I didn't know he was going to say this, and he stood uh, at the altar and he said, I want to welcome everybody to the wedding of Andrew and Lavinia. But before we begin, let me say, we have here today a Catholic priest and a minister from the Assemblies of God. He said, I want to tell you that we've spent the last few months together and we are getting along swimmingly. (laughs) And then he said this. He said, let this be a picture for the fractioned for the fractured and broken body of Jesus Christ, that we are one. There may be some theological disagreements, and we may worship somewhere different on a Sunday morning. But we're one in Christ. So when Jesus talks about, when he prays for you and me that we're believers, that we would be one as he and the Father are one, I think this is the first thing he's praying for, is that we would understand our identity, our identity in Christ. Here's the second thing I think he's talking about. Jesus is one with his father. That's how he identifies himself. He is one with his father. The second thing is that he is one in his actions with what his father does. One in his actions with what his father does. In John chapter 5, this is how Jesus puts it. I can do nothing On my own. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus says, in my actions, I only do what I see the Father doing. So I identify myself as the Son of God. I and the Father are one. And when I act, I only do what my Father is doing. If our identity, if your identity and my identity is in Jesus Christ, if we are one with God through Christ, then our actions and our lives should reflect that reality. Far too often for many of us, and listen, all of us have these places in our lives, you have it and I have had it in my life as well, where what we say that we believe and what we claim as our identity is not reflected in what we do. There are plenty of places in your life and my life where we have our belief in Christ. We claim this identity as our primary identity. We get that right, but then it's not reflected in our actions. And my question to you this morning as we think about this very briefly is where in your life are your actions not reflecting the actions of your Father in heaven? Where in your life today is there a disconnect? God calls you to a certain standard in your relationships. God calls you to a certain standard in your work. God calls you to a certain standard in the way that you think and the way that you live. Where is there a disconnect right now in your life between the things that God calls you to do and asks you to do and how you're actually living? We should be the type of people who do what we see our Father doing if we're one with him. A couple of weeks ago, I was standing at the island in my kitchen 
and I was getting my kids uh, their, their food. I think it was breakfast. So we're getting breakfast. And they both said to me, they said, Dad, do a magic trick. Well, I don't know any magic tricks, and I'm not even sure where that came from. They said, do a magic trick. And I said, well, I don't know any magic trick. They're like, do a magic trick. Come on, do a magic trick. My kids are five and three. This would be, a, or five and two, almost three. This would be a weirder story if they were like 20 and 18. But they're five and, and two. And they said, do a magic trick. And so I just, I just played this game with them. And I said, I said, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm going to make this bag of chips disappear. And I started showing that there was nothing on my sleeves. And I took the bag of chips and we have this pantry closet. And I, I like very dramatically walked into the pantry closet and shut the door. And I just put the chips on the shelf. And then I burst through the door and the chips were gone. And they clapped. They loved the trick. <laughs> So weeks later, we're, camp- we're camping in this cabin, and there's a uh, picture of the cabin with me. There's one main room when you walk in the cabin, and that's where uh, our bed was, mine and Lori's bed. And then there was a back bedroom. So we're all in the main room, and there's a bed, and there's a table. And Jackson, my two-year-old son, walks out, and he says, out of nowhere, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Boys and girls, and he holds up his stuffed bear. I'm going to make this bear appear. And I think, I think he meant disappear, but that's all right. He got close. And then he started showing that there was nothing up his sleeves. And then he walked dramatically into the bedroom of the cabin, and he slammed the door behind him, and he put that bear on a shelf in his, in his room, in his cabin, and he opened up the door, and he came out dramatically, and the bear had disappeared. He was just doing what he saw his father do. He was mimicking the behavior of his father. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Jesus did. I don't do anything unless I see my father do it. Everything you see me doing, healing, loving, mending, calling out sin, that's what I see my father doing. And I reflect that in my life. If we are to be one as Christ, Jesus, and his Father are one, then we too, there should be a consistency between what our Father does and what we do. In fact, this is what I think Jesus is praying for. For those of us who believe, we are to be one in who we are and what we do. For those of us who believe, if you call yourself a believer someone that trusts Jesus Christ. We are to be one in who we are and what we do. But why? Why? Well, Jesus answers that in the next line of his prayer. So that, Jesus says, the world may believe that you have sent me. You and I are to be one, Jesus is praying for, just as he and the Father is one, that we would be united in our identity in Christ and the way that we live out our lives so that the world might know that God sent Jesus to this earth. Let me tell you, in a world and a culture that is so fractured and divided, what greater testimony would we have as the people of God than if we could display perfect unity and consistency between who we are and what we do. 
If we could love each other and love the world the way that God calls us to, what sort of testimony might that be to the name of Jesus Christ to a world that is in great search and disillusionment around this idea of unity? The challenge is many of us have lost our identity. It's become second to other things. In fact, some of the things that are silly things, like our love of a sports team or a musician or the people that we follow on social media, actually become more important identifiers in our life than the fact that we're believers in Jesus Christ. We got to get that right and start with the fact that we are one with God through Christ and let that be the primary identifier in our lives. When we get it wrong, we send the opposite message to the world. These people say that they believe in something, but, but they, they're just like, there's no difference in their life. And when we say we believe in something and we have certain ideals and then we go out and our actions are completely different, that hypocrisy is certainly a message to the world too. That maybe Jesus isn't who he says he is. But when we get it right, and our identity is in Christ, and our actions line up with what God calls us to do, then we have a powerful witness to this world that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. So do you believe this morning? Are you finding your identity in Christ? Is there a consistency between what you say you believe and what you do? Those are important questions for all of us. Jesus prayed that you who believe might be one as he and the Father are one, that your identity in Christ might be sure and your life might bear that out. And if we could do it together, what a powerful testimony, witness we would give to the world around us. I'm going to invite you, if you would, just to bow your head and close your eyes. I'll invite our musicians. You guys can come back up on stage as we prepare to close this morning. And as we do, I want to give you an opportunity to reflect on these things in your own heart and in your own mind. Maybe you come in here this morning and you say, you know, I'm not someone who counts myself as someone who believes Maybe you're at the point where you would want to be someone who believes this morning, or maybe you're at the point where you have more questions. I'd love to talk to you before you leave this morning. But very simply, all you need to do in your own heart and in your own mind is just tell God that you believe. You believe Jesus is exactly who he said he was, that he is the savior of the world, the one who came to live and die, that our relationship with God might be reconciled. To put your trust in him and to follow him. If you're willing to do that this morning and you pray that and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you can count yourself among the believers. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and this morning God's speaking to you and is reminding you that you're finding your identity somewhere other than Christ. 
that being a student or being a certain profession is, has greater weight and importance in your life than does following Jesus Christ. And this morning is an opportunity to get those identities straight again. So the fact that you are one with God through Christ is the primary identifier in the way that you live this, your life and the way that you interpret this world. And maybe you're here this morning and you know there's a disconnect between what you say you believe and what your identity is and the actions that you are doing. This morning can be a morning for you to come before God and confess that sin, confess that discrepancy, and ask God to forgive you, and he will do it. So I'm going to close this in a word of prayer, and then our, mu- our music team is going to play one final song. And as we do, I'd invite you to take a moment and reaffirm your belief in Jesus Christ, reaffirm your identity in God through Christ, and deal with those places in your life where there's an inconsistency between what you believe and what you do. And if you want someone to pray with you, Some of our leaders will be in the back. Justin and Alain will be in the back. Bill and Karen will be in the back. They want to pray with you. If you're here this morning, you want to pray about something that God's speaking to you about this morning, you have something going on in your life, someone that needs to be healed near you, something that you need God to do in your life, please go back as we close this morning and they will pray with you. God, we come to you this morning asking that you would forgive us for the places in our lives where we have lost our primary identity in you. Pray that you would forgive us for the places in our lives where our actions don't meet up with our beliefs. God, we thank you that you are a God who is slow to anger and quick to love, filled with mercy and compassion. And so this morning, God, we pray that for those of us who count ourselves believers of Jesus Christ, cover us with your grace and with your mercy. You remind us who we are and help us to live the lives you call us to live in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont campus. At Mount Hope, we gather each week to learn about God so that we might grow in our love for him and for others. And then we go to live lives driven by our faith. We'd love to have you join us on a Sunday. We meet every week at 10 o'clock in the morning. You can always find out more about us on our website, mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E.org, or like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Just search Mount Hope Belmont. Thanks again for listening, and may God bless you today.